Let's take our Bibles this evening and turn to Exodus chapter 10. Exodus and uh, chapter 10, we're going to begin reading in verse 1 in just a moment. We uh, find ourselves on plague number 8. I mentioned we'll be studying plague 7 this morning. It's actually plague 8. So if you've been keeping up. Um, and so we are in the third group of plagues. If you remember, I, we divided the plagues into uh, three separate groups. That thought did not originate with me. Uh, you see a pattern uh, here in the, in the text. Um, in the first group of three, uh, you see that uh, Moses was instructed to meet Pharaoh during morning worship. And then plague number two, Moses was instructed to go to Pharaoh with a warning that if he did not let the people go, then the plague would happen. And then the third plague was, came without warning. And so that's the first group, the first three plagues. The water turned to blood, the frogs everywhere, and the dust becoming lice. And then we come into the second group of plagues, and the pattern is the same. In plague number four, Moses goes to Pharaoh at his early morning worship. Um, then plague number five, Moses instructs Pharaoh with a warning. And he says, if you don't let the people go, the next plague will come. And the sixth plague came without warning. And that closes the second group of plagues. And now we come, we're in the midst of the third group of plagues. We talked about plague seven, and so plague seven in the same manner as plague one and plague four. Moses goes to Pharaoh during his early morning worship, and uh, we studied the hell destroying both man and beast, but also uh, the crops. We know that uh, those crops that were close to harvest were completely destroyed. The crops that were just beginning to bud out of the ground were not. But plague 8 will take care of that. And so we come to plague 8, and we're going to begin reading in, in just a moment. At the conclusion of the third section here, plague 7, 8, and 9, then we have plague number 10, and plague number 10 stand on, stands on its own, and that's the plague that the Pharaoh is finally going to say. It's interesting that Throughout all the plagues, the idea of the children of Israel leaving was always temporary. We're going to go into the wilderness and offer a feast unto the Lord. But by the time plague 10 comes, it will be Pharaoh who is going to say, you need to leave permanently. Not go temporarily, but leave permanently. That's going to be by the hand of Pharaoh. Remember, the request was just that they might go three days journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifice unto the Lord their God. Um... And we'll see that here in this text as well. So let's begin reading here in Exodus chapter 10, uh, verse 1. And the word of God says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I might show thee my signs before him. And that thou mayest tell the ears of thy son... And of thy son's son, what things I have wrought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know that I am the Lord. 
And Moses and Aaron came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. Else, if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into thy coast, and they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, whatever was not destroyed by the hail, which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. And they shall fill thy houses, and thy houses, and the houses of all thy servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's servants said unto him, Now this is amazing. How long shall this man be a snare unto us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest not yet that Egypt is destroyed? And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh, and he said unto them, Go serve the Lord your God, but who are they that shall go? And Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds, we will go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he said unto them, Let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go, and your little ones Look to it, for evil is before you. Not so. Go now, ye that are men, and serve the Lord. For that ye did desire. And they were driven from out, uh, out from Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locust, and they, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, even all the hell that, uh, that the hell hath left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they. Before them... There were no such locusts as they, neither after them shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they did eat every herb of the land, and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left, and there remained not any green thing in the trees, or in the herbs of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste. And he said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. And he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind which took away the locusts and cast them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the coasts of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. 
I would like to bring your attention to verse 7. Uh, Pharaoh's servants come to Pharaoh and they advise him with a question at the end of verse 7. They say, Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed? As we think about that statement, I, I think as we begin here, this statement reveals two important truths that I would like to consider in this particular study. Uh, we're going to see here because the statement, uh, yes, on the surface means here that the plagues were so severe that the, the, the destruction of Egypt had already been guaranteed. So that's what we know now. Before plague number eight comes, the destruction of Egypt has already been guaranteed. In other words, what I'm saying is before we begin and God uh, brings forth this sign with the locust everywhere, Egypt is already destroyed. Egypt has already become a barren land, an impoverished land. And so we see here that the plagues were so severe that the destruction of Egypt had already been guaranteed. And that's what I see in that statement. But I see something else in this statement because here they are talking to who? Pharaoh. And what we learn here by this question is this, is that the heart of man can become so wicked that the mind is unable to think rationally. Let me say that again. We learn from this statement, Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed, that the heart of man can become so wicked that the mind is unable to think rationally. And so we find here, as we look at our text, we, we see here that there's much going on. We could think about what this teaches us about the heart of man. We could uh, go the direction and think about what that teaches us about uh, Jehovah God. And we could think also about what that teaches the children of Israel. And we've talked about this. But let's keep these things in mind here that uh, the uh, punishment that God is bringing upon Egypt is ensuring the complete destruction of Egypt. But also we find uh, the struggle of man uh, with God and God's judgment upon man's refusal to submit to God. The question is asked by Moses to Pharaoh in um, verse 3, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Uh, therein lies the great trouble with humanity, with man. And by the way, therein also lies the great trouble in the life also of believers. That we may get to the place in our lives where we refuse to humble ourselves before God. Let me remind you, now we know this to be true of the world, but we can also be reminded of James when the book of James is written to believers when he says that God resisteth the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so we know here what that tells us about Pharaoh, but uh, let's try to do our best to make application 
uh, with ourselves. That is always uh, the challenge when we come uh, to the Word of God. We should not stand back and be so critical and say, man, that guy, he's just bad, he's just bad. And we, we should think, as I've said this many times, um, don't talk yourself into thinking that just because the degree is not as bad as Pharaoh in your life, that it's okay. Uh, the, if there is any presence of pride, it needs to be dealt with. So we should be concerned with its presence, not the degree. The Bible says that if we compare ourselves with other men, we are not wise. That's a not, not a wise thing to do. So we come to God. We compare ourselves to God. So let's uh, come into the text here and let's begin to uh, study together, keeping in mind that Egypt is already destroyed. Uh, the future of Egypt is already one of famine, one of social and economic turmoil. That's already guaranteed by this time. But also we observe the heart of man. As we come here, we find this meeting. The Lord says unto Moses, once again to go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I might show thee my signs before him. I'll talk about this at the end, but God hardening the heart of Pharaoh is also a form of judgment. It is a form of judgment because throughout uh, this record we find that uh, uh, Pharaoh questioned God, Pharaoh denied God, uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and, and God at the same time, He is also hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And in a sense, that is God's judgment also upon the Pharaoh. Uh, he, Moses goes to Pharaoh again and notice what he says. He says, uh, For I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. And then God tells Moses, He gives Moses really three reasons. If you notice in the text, in verse 1 and 2, you find the word that used three times. So it could be seen in two ways. You could say in order or because I want to do this. So notice here, let's read those verses again as we think about the word that. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go in unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants. Here it is. That in order to... Show these my signs before him. Number two, and that in order to, that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt, and that my signs which I have done among them, and then notice the third one, that in order to, ye may know how that I am the Lord. And so God instructs Moses once again to go to Pharaoh and to deliver this message. We'll see the message in just a little while. But God provides Moses, and God has not always done so in those plagues, but this time He does. He gives Moses three reasons for doing that, for caring once again. It must have been frustrating. We are now eight times. Although not every time did He go to Pharaoh but most of the time he did. And so now it's the eighth plague, and we see here the repetition. Now notice here, 
three times the word that is used. And so first of all, we see here that God is going to send Moses to Pharaoh. He's going to send another warning, another plague. First of all, that God's power might be seen. That's the first reason that God gives to Moses. Notice again verse 3, or verse 1, that I might show these my signs before him. Now, obviously, the Bible refers to those signs. We've referred to them as plagues or as judgments, but they are sign. Now, again, a sign is what? I, I like the word sign, and perhaps I should have used that word more as we've studied those plagues, because the sign means exactly that. It's a message. It's not just about the plagues. It's not just about the death of the cattle and the insects. It's about what they communicate about God. And so these are signs. We could also call them wonders that God is doing in Egypt. They will be referred to later on. The signs and the wonders that God wrought in Egypt. So they communicate something about God's power. And so God says, I'm, you're going to go one more time. Give him a warning uh, that I might show these my signs before him. And so the signs or those plagues unequivocally demonstrate the power of God. There is no reasonable person at that time, if we all lived in Egypt, there is not one reasonable, rational person that could deny the power of God. Now, uh, some people today, uh, some historians, it's interesting uh, that some historians will, it's documented the the Egyptian, ex, the exodus out of Egypt. It's documented the wilderness wandering and then the children of Israel going into the promised land. But you know what historians often, what they, they discredit the Bible. Why? Because, well, when you study what happened in Egypt, there is no uh, e Egyptian uh, documentation documenting the ten plagues. And I say to us, well, well, that, that is just like human nature, isn't it? Why would the Egyptians want to record their demise? Why would the Egyptians want to record what happened to them and their ruin? Has all the historians agree that when Moses lived and when Moses left Egypt, before then Egypt was at its zenith. And when they left, Egypt was destroyed. And so all the historians agree with that. But yet they still say, well, nothing really spectacular happened. How could the greatest empire at that time that ruled the world be destroyed with nothing happening? No reasonable or sane person would have said at that time, oh, we haven't seen the power of God. We are completely ignorant. No, no person can do that. And so God says, go to him that I might show these my signs before him. The second reason that God gives is also a very important reason. He says this, number two, verse two, that thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and of thy son's son, what things I have wrought in Egypt, and my signs which I have done among them, that ye may know that I am the Lord. And so notice here, God, so first of all, 
God is going to uh, send Moses and God is going to show signs so that his mighty power can be seen. But God is also going to do that. Now notice this is not just for the Pharaoh to learn about God and the Egyptians to learn about God and for the world to remember what God did in Egypt. But this would also be for the children of Israel that God's work might be told. Now, I think here this is very important. You see, these plagues would be an opportunity for parents to tell their children about God's mighty work on their behalf. Uh, now, it's interesting because this, uh, this is the first time we see that reason given, but it's going to be given later in the book of Exodus and later also in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, I do want to take you through that because I think it's very important. Notice with me in Exodus chapter 12. Turn a few pages over to Exodus chapter 12. Notice with me verse 26 and 27. Exodus 12, verse 26, 27. The Bible says, And it shall come to pass, when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses, and the people bowed the head and worshipped. Uh, notice with me uh, verse 28. And the children of Israel went away and did as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so did they. So notice here, verse 26 again. And it shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye this service? What The Passover that's going to be instituted. For the children of Israel to remember, your children are going to ask about that, and they're going to, you're going to tell them exactly what God did. Uh, turn with me to chapter 13, Exodus chapter 13. Notice verse 8. And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. Notice down to verse 14. And it shall be when thy son asketh thee in the time to come, saying, What is this? That thou shalt say unto him, By strength of hand the Lord brought us, uh, brought us out from Egypt from the house of bondage. So again and again from this moment on, when God tells Moses, here is why I am sending you one more time to Pharaoh. It is not just for me to display my power so that Pharaoh might know my power. But it is also for you that you might teach your children and your children's children the wonderful works that I've done on their behalf. Uh, we could read over in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 9, chapter 6 verse 7, chapter 11 verse 19. I won't go there for sake of time, but I hope that you get the point by now. If you've studied the book of Deuteronomy, you know that that is repeated time and time again. It is the responsibility of those parents to tell their children and their children's children what God has done. And so we, we ask ourselves here, well, what is the big deal? Here is why this is a big deal. Because the deliverance from Egyptian bondage has only one, happened once in the history of the nation of Israel. It has not happened again. God has not delivered His people time and time again through those ten plagues. And so it's important here for this reason. Because the parents, those who were there during the ten plagues, 
Those who were there who saw the mighty power of God, those who were there and saw God deliver them from Egyptian bondage, understand what that means. It means that their children are not going to see the power of God in the same way. And it means that their grandchildren are not going to see the power of God in the same way. And therefore, it is the responsibility of the parents to pass along what God has done for them. You see, God does not promise that the generations to come will see the same miracles. God does not promise to show Himself strong in the subsequent years of the children and their children's children. And so this is important for us because we understand that the same principle applies today. The responsibility of instructing children is given first to the parents. It is not... um, your job to abdicate that responsibility to pass that on to the church or to a school or to the grandparents. As a parent, it is your responsibility to teach your children what? What God has done for you. And it does not require for God to duplicate again mighty signs and mighty wonders so that your, the, the children would see those things and therefore believe in the power of God. God tells us that the word alone is sufficient to instruct. Now, it's the same for the church. Uh, the Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians, for example, that uh, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. There was only one Jesus Christ. There was only these apostles. There are no apostles, big A, today. We are apostles in the, in the sense that the word means sent one, but there's no big A office of apostleship. They have gone. God gave apostles signs and wonders during the book of Acts. And so today, as a church, uh, we think about uh, in the 21st century, understand that we do not need signs and wonders today. Signs and wonders were already done, but we do live upon the word being passed along, and we have the record for us today that the signs and wonders were already wrought in the church and that God has already shown His power in the church. And so now that has been passed on by instruction, by declaration, by telling the next generation, and to God, that is sufficient. That is why it is so important here to give Moses the reason. Here is why I'm doing the miracle. I'm doing the miracles because your children and your children's children are not going to have the same miracles, but you telling them will be enough and is required. So we see here that God is sending those signs so that the children of Israel can tell their sons and their sons' sons that God's work might be told. That's why God sent the plagues. But there's a third reason that God gives. Notice at the end of verse 2, that ye may know how that I am the Lord. Now, it's interesting, the phrasing of that verse that ye may, it doesn't say that ye may know that I am the Lord that would make sense that ye may know how that I am the Lord 
And so might we learn those things. Might we also tell of God's work in our lives. Might we also declare and know and come to learn that God is sufficient. As we continue here, now we spent a lot of time, it's not going to be as long for the remaining 20 verses. All right, but let's keep moving. And Moses and Aaron came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let, uh, let my people go that they may serve me. Else, if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locust into the coast. I want you to see here that there is uh, three things when Moses finally comes to this meeting with Pharaoh. In the first part of the chapter, we see that God gives Moses the basis why he's going to do what he's going to do. In the second part of this chapter, now Moses is going to stand before Pharaoh and God is telling him exactly the message that he has for Pharaoh. But this message, notice, is threefold for Pharaoh. Now this is repetition, but first of all, Pharaoh is confronted. Confronted with what? His pride. Now, Moses has already done that. But he's going to do that again. Secondly, Pharaoh is going to be instructed. And then thirdly, Pharaoh is going to be warned. Notice here the confrontation. Moses tells Pharaoh and asks Pharaoh a question. A question is always helpful because it is introspective. Pharaoh has a moment here to think about himself and about his life. What has he been doing? He has not been humbling himself before God. Now, if you remember the first encounter, Pharaoh had said to Moses, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Well, here we are, seven plagues later. Do you know God yet? Now, the trouble for the Egyptians is that I think much like perhaps Hinduism, if you preach Christ, many of the Hindus will see them as another god. And they will accept him as one of the other gods. Now, now that's the, the, no doubt one of the issues with the Egyptians. But surely they must know that even if there's a multiplicity of God, that the gods of the Hebrews is more powerful than any other gods. If there were other gods trying to come in the mind of the Egyptians. And yet Pharaoh does not want to humble himself under the mighty hand of God, and the mighty hand of God has already been demonstrated. And so here, Pharaoh, it is a failure for him to humble himself. Notice, he says, humble thyself before me. You see, it is not enough for Pharaoh to recognize and to acknowledge that God exists and that God is powerful. What Pharaoh must do is humble himself. Now, that takes another step. You see, at this point, it would be logical for Pharaoh to say, yeah, Jehovah God exists, and yes, he is powerful. I cannot deny it. But what he does fail to do is humble himself. Just because someone has acknowledged the existence of God and the power of God does not mean that they've humbled themselves before God. So Pharaoh is confronted, but then Pharaoh is instructed. Again, the instruction is the same. At the end of verse 3, Let my people go, that they may serve me. So the Israelites are possessive to God. They belong to God. They're my people, 
And notice the basis of letting them go is for them to serve God. Now, I've already spent a lot of time and repeated that. The point of their freedom and their liberality and their or liberty and their redemption is not freedom itself. It's service. We must understand that today even as believers. The point of our salvation, of our redemption, of our forgiveness, of our being delivered from the bondage of sin in death is not for freedom. It's for service. That is the basis of our redemption. Now our sins are forgiven. We have a home in heaven. But while we are here in this earth, the point of our redemption is service. So Pharaoh is instructed, let the people go. And then Pharaoh is warned as he's been many times before. The warning is clear. There's going to be another sign. Verse 4, Out, if thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locust into thy coast, and they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remained unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. And they shall fill thy houses, and the houses of all thy servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy father's fathers have seen, since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. So notice here, Pharaoh gives him a warning, and there's no discussion. He turns around and leaves. But Pharaoh has been warned. Now, I want you to notice here, uh, before some of the warnings might be just general, this is not just specific as to what's coming, but the damage that's going to be done with what's coming. And I want you to notice here, because Pharaoh, it's not like he doesn't know what's coming. (laughs) There's only... Out of the by the end by the end, for all ten plagues, only three of them came without warning. The rest are going to come with a warning. It's an opportunity to Pharaoh at that point to humble himself before God. And so here we look and we see in our text what is described. Now I'm going to talk about it a little later on when we find in our text what actually happens. But notice here, this is the warning that comes. Locusts are coming. Now, the Egyptians wouldn't know what locusts are. Everybody at that time, the Egyptians feared locusts. As a matter of fact, they so feared locusts that uh, they would pray to the locust god to spare them because this is what it meant. Locust means this. Ready? Famine. That's what it means. Famine is not pleasant. Famine would mean that everything would change in Egypt. There would be economic unrest. There would be social unrest. There would probably be a revolt as there always is in famine. There would be stealing and murder. People know what the consequence of of, of locusts means. And so the idea here of, oh, the little bugs are coming. No, no, no. This would be major to Pharaoh. As a matter of fact, I want you to think here. Later we see in the text that this is the only time when Pharaoh is going to ask for Aaron and uh, Moses to come back and to hurry up. 
Why? Because this is that severe. Now, I want you to notice here. Now, no doubt Pharaoh thinks, okay, locust bad. It always means famine. But this plague, this sign, these locusts, is going to be like Egypt has never seen. Now, that tells us something. They've already seen locusts. But they've never seen something like this. Notice here, verse 5, they shall cover the face of the earth. Now, when the Bible says they will cover the face of the earth, it is not an exaggeration. It is the fact. That one cannot be able to see the earth. You won't be able to, they won't be able to look at the ground and see the dirt on the ground. The Bible says, and they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped. Now, he mentions, which remained unto you from the hail. Now, remember, we studied the hail and we talked about how the first fruit from the harvest was about to come. Harvest was about ready. And so when the hell came, it destroyed everything. But there's also, they would plant their crops in shifts. And so the first harvest was decimated, but the second one was not. And so it was, it was uh, starting to bud and starting to come out. And so by the time that the hail is over and the, the fire is over, now you have the new crops coming from the earth. And so understand what it means that the locusts, when they're come, they're going to come and eat the residue. This is what it means. If there is anything left, it will be gone. Because the locusts are not just going to nibble a little bit on top. They're going to dig down in the ground and uproot everything. They're covering the earth. They shall eat every tree, not just the crops, every tree in Egypt. So imagine for just a moment if you went before the time of Moses, you would walk and stroll through all the Egyptian land and you would see all the beauty, you would see all the gardens, you would see all the temples, you would see uh, as it would appear here in the midst of a desert just beauty and, and flowers and greenery everywhere. And so by the time that this plague is going to be over, there's going to be nothing green in Egypt. Nothing green in Egypt. That's the warning that Pharaoh got. It's not only that, the Bible says, uh, by the way, not only every tree which groweth you out of the field, and they shall fill thy houses and the houses of all thy servants. Why? It's going to take just, it's ju it's, it's going to take just moments for all the green to be gone. And so what they're going to do next? Well, you got to go to the houses. There's food in the houses. You know what that means? If the Egyptians were hurrying up as they saw the wind coming and they saw the locusts flying in, let's gather all that we can. It's too late. The locusts are going to come in your house and they're going to devour whatever you've grabbed and put in your house in safety. They're going to devour that as well. The houses of all the Egyptians, the Bible says, verse 6, which neither thy fathers nor thy fathers' fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. And he turned himself and went out from Pharaoh. So understand here, this is not, oh, we have cute insects coming. This is going to be complete devastation and ruin. So Pharaoh has been warned. With this warning, Pharaoh goes out the door very quickly at the end of verse 6. And so now there is a conference between Pharaoh and Pharaoh's servants in verse 7. And Pharaoh's servants said, Notice unto him, How long shall this man be a snare unto us? 
Let the men go. Now I want you to note here, I know that uh, Pharaoh offers a compromise to Moses and Aaron, but that compromise came from the servants. They're the ones that said, let the men go, not the women and the children. That came from the servants. So understand, the servants were not wanting to let the children go. They're not there yet. Now they're going to be there because they're going to, whatever is left in Egypt, whatever is left in Egypt by the end, they're going to say, take it. We already have nothing, but whatever we have left, take it. Right? The gold and the silver, that which the insects could not eat, you take that, just leave. But at this point, even now, we, we criticize Pharaoh, but also a lot of the Egyptians, they're, they're, they're wanting a compromise here. They, they don't want the children of Israel uh, uh, to go. Uh, they just want the men to go to ensure that they come back. So they know, you see, the idea here, this is still temporary in the mind of Pharaoh, even in the mind of the children of Israel, this is still temporary. They're going to go in the wilderness and then they're going to come back. So just let the men go. I know that's what you men want to do. And so since you're the uh, leader of the house, you're going to do it leave the women and the children there. It's dangerous out there. Now, that's what they counsel Pharaoh. But notice what they say. Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Knowest thou not yet that Egypt is destroyed. So here we see the reasoning of the servants. The servants appeal to Pharaoh's reasonableness now this is offering a compromise but the point that we make here is that Egypt is already ruined before plague 8 comes in other words if God stopped there it would already have been enough for Egypt to be ruined. It's already destroyed. But yet they're still trying to compromise. They're still trying to play a game. That's disobedience to God. I mentioned this a few weeks when Pharaoh had offered another compromise to offer the sacrifice in the land. You remember that? That's disobedience. That's not what God wanted. And so here again, uh, the compromise is offered, but it is disobedience. Notice here, verse 8, And Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh after the suggestion of the servants. And he said unto them, Go serve the Lord your God, but who are they that shall go? So here's the question. Who is going to go? Now, Moses has already established everybody's going. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? Everybody's going. But Pharaoh said, well, who's going to go? And Moses said, we will go with our young and with our old and with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds, we will go, for we must hold a feast of the Lord. So basically he said, everybody's going, even the animals. And he said unto them, let the Lord be so with you, as I will let you go, and your little ones, look to it, for evil is before you. He says, you really want to take them in the wilderness? It sounds kind of dangerous. You really want to take the little ones out there? You know, there's robbers out in the wilderness and you want to be careful? Not so. Go now, ye that are men, and serve the Lord. For that ye did desire. Didn't you, do you want to do that? So you see how he's playing with words there? You want to serve God? Well, go. You know, you want to serve God. I haven't seen any women stand before me saying they want to serve God, but you men have stood before. So you go ahead. You serve God. Isn't that what you want? 
Just don't take the, the women and the children. It's not safe for them, right? What is he doing here? And obviously, he's playing around. He, that's not submission to God. You know, sometimes we might play around too with God. Compromise a little, compromise a little here, a little there. You know, not, not complete obedience, just living on the edge. It's disobedience. Disobedience. And so then we see the rejection of Moses on this compromise. Verse 11, he says, Not so go now, ye that are men, and serve the Lord for that ye did desire, and they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Now, the Bible says they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So obviously, we don't know what Moses and Aaron said, but obviously it was no. Because they were thrust out of the court. In the next verse, the plague, the plague comes. So in other words, Moses and Aaron, it seems to me that maybe if they had said something, it would have been recorded there. But I think that Pharaoh already knew the answer. They probably just stood there. So you all can just send them in. It says, get out. Get them out of my chambers. So, verse 12, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out thine hand over the land of Egypt for the locust, that they may come up upon the land of Egypt and eat every herb of the land, even all that the hell hath left. And Moses stretched forth his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested in all the coasts of Egypt. Very grievous were they before them that were no, no such locusts as they, neither after them uh, shall be such. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they did eat every herb of the land, of all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left, and there remained not any green thing in the trees or in the herbs of the field throughout all, through all the land of Egypt. That, so, I already made that statement. When the locusts are gone, there will be nothing green left in Egypt. I want you to think for just a moment. Do you know in that place of the, of the world, the world would know Egypt because it was peculiar. Just It seemed that there were miraculous things that took place there. The Nile overflowing. and The era was not really conducive unless there were some special happenings. And so people would think of Egypt as being this wonderful and green place, this oasis. And the Egyptians attributed all that blessing and beauty and prosperity to the gods. If you were a stranger from Ethiopia coming into Egypt to do trade, and you would talk to an Egyptian and say, Man, this is beautiful here. Look at all those temples, and look at all those gardens, and uh, look at all the prosperity. Look at your army. I mean, this is, this is mighty, and this is this wonderful. Uh, how have you done this? And the Egyptian, well, you would see... Uh, the gods have blessed us. Hecht. And our goddesses and our gods, the god of fertility, the god of prosperity, the god of crops, the, the sun god, the god of the Nile, and, 
And they would tell stories of all their gods. And the Ethiopian man would go back to his country and he would come back a year later after the plague had happened and he would walk into the same country that had all this beauty and this blessing and this prosperity and he would come a year later and find the same place completely barren and empty, a wasteland with everything that they had attributed to their gods gone. And the Ethiopian would inquire to the Egyptian again. He'd say, what happened? Where are your gods? Where's your blessing? Where's your prosperity? What have you done? It's all gone. This would be a great blow to the Egyptians. Understand that when the children of Israel leave, Egypt is unrecognizable. The Bible says in verse 13, the Lord brought an east wind. It's interesting, in Psalm 105, verse 34, when talking about that plague, the Bible says, He spake and the locust came. You know what that wind was? It was the breath of God. He spake and the locust came and caterpillars and without number. And so, um, you, if you've ever been caught in a storm, you know that often preceding a storm, there's kind of this fresh wind that comes by. We experienced that recently. We went to uh, a hiking trail over at the um, White Clay Creek part on the Pennsylvania side. And so I took the family out there and it announced rain. But so far as we knew, there was nothing, you know, the sky looked pretty clear. But then we got in the forest and you can't really see the sky. You're walking through the woods and the trail. We went there with the men's, uh, after the men's uh, uh, sharpening time and, uh, and so I took the children there, the whole family, and we're pretty deep in the woods. And, and all of a sudden you can feel this breeze just swooshing behind you, this freshness. And you can smell it. It's coming. And sure enough, we got caught in the rain. Torrential downpour. It was a great time. <laughs> At the end. <laughs> in the middle of it, it was like, oh, you know, thunder, lightning, middle of the woods. And... Uh, but you could feel that coming. The wind blows. Pharaoh has been warned. The servants of Pharaoh know what's coming. And here they feel this breeze, this wind coming. And then they hear the locust. I was reading a description by John Davis. He describes the locust plague. He says, the locust is perhaps... Nature's most awesome example of the collective destructive power of species. An adult locust weighs a maximum of two grams. And its combined destructive force can leave thousands of people with famine for years. Locust plagues were very much feared in ancient Egypt. So much so that the peasants were in the habit of praying to a locust god. A locust is capable of eating its own weight daily. One square mile of swarm will normally contain from 100 million to 200 million of these creatures. Swarms covering more than 400 square miles have been recorded. 
flying locusts have been uh, regarded as marvels of stamina. They are able to flap their wings nonstop for 17 hours and may be able to fly at a cruising airspeed of 10 to 12 miles an hour for 20 hours or more. When the young hoppers would become winged adults, the bands become swarms with increased mobility and an average density of about 130 million per square mile. Now those, that's just the research that's been done. What happened in Egypt has never been done before or after. So whatever has been recorded, it was more severe than that. Depending on wind wind conditions, collective movement ranges from a few miles to more than 60 miles in one day. So as I mentioned before, the result of this plague... And the Bible says they covered the earth. You could not see the earth. The result of this plague meant guaranteed famine for Egypt. This would also mean widespread civil and social unrest for many years to come. If you... If we continue in our text, verse 16. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in... What's the next word? I haven't seen that before. There are only three recorded times. Three recorded times when Pharaoh called on Moses and Aaron in the midst of a plague. Thus far. We know that certain plagues just ran their course. Right? So... When the water was turned to blood, that was seven days. Uh, When um, uh, the dust was turned to lice, lice only live for a certain amount of time. Then they they die off. Uh, The death of the cattle uh, by the disease, by the moraine, well, they're all dead. So what are you going to do? The boil on the bodies would also run its course. So there was no need at that time, right, for Pharaoh to ask them. The plague would just run its course and then be done. But the other time, remember during the frogs, the invasion of the frogs, the Bible says, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord to take away the frogs. During the swarm of flies, the fourth plague in Exodus 8.25, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to God in your land, only take away this plague and I'll let you go. And then the hell. In the seventh plague, Exodus 9.27, And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time, entreat the Lord. So, here though, it's different than Pharaoh, verse 16, called for Moses and Aaron in haste. What I'm, what I'm trying to show you here is that all the plagues are all bad. But this one is the worst yet. It's so bad that Pharaoh for the first time up to this point said, hurry up. Hurry up. If you want to know the degree and the severity of this plague, look at what Pharaoh did. You see here, 
In verse 17, now therefore forgive, I pray thee, my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So here again, as I've made the point throughout the plagues, we see that Pharaoh appears to um, confess, to admit of his sinfulness against God, against the children of Israel, but then he quickly turns. And I've made the point, and we see that again, is that he offers contrition only because he wants the plague to be done away with. That is not a heart that's getting right with God. You see, the Pharaoh could have said, you know what, I'm wrong and we deserve this punishment, so I'll let you go even if God doesn't take away the punishment because I deserve it. If you deserve it, you don't say, well, take it away, then I'll do this. You see, we don't come with conditions on God. God does have conditions for us, though. But whenever we place conditions on God, well, God, uh, if you do this for me, then I'll do this. That's a sign of a heart that's not interested in the first place in submitting to God. Now, it's interesting because we've seen Moses, when that's been done, Moses has already confronted Pharaoh and says, I know you're not. You're not speaking in sincerity. But here... Verse 18, and he went out from Pharaoh's presence and entreated the Lord. Moses, I think he knows he's already dishonest. I mean, look, after the locusts, there is nothing left. Everything green is gone. The cattle are gone. The human bodies have been tried. The hail has destroyed all the crops. And whatever was left in Egypt's crops and Egypt's beauty is now completely gone. And a Pharaoh is still not speaking in sincerity. He still has a heart that says, I'll only obey God if God does this for me. And so that was a grievous confession. And Moses just leaves. And yet, notice, can you imagine Moses? He knows that Pharaoh is not sincere. He went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. Can you imagine what being in the position of Pharaoh? Lord, would you... Knowing that Pharaoh is not sincere, take away the plague. Take away the locusts, verse 19. And the Lord turned a mighty strong west wind, which took away the locusts and cast them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the coasts of Egypt. That's just remarkable, the language of the Bible, just like we talked about the previous plagues. Not one left. Not one. Now think about this for just a moment. It is a great miracle to see a plague that completely covers the earth. It is an equally great miracle that not one locust would be found in Egypt. Verse 20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the children of Israel go. We finish with this, Pharaoh's grave condition. When God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, it is a form of judgment. Pharaoh has shown himself to be obstinate, to discount God, to deny God. And even when God has shown himself, his heart has been persistent in resisting and not letting the people go. And every step of the way, God is applying His hand of judgment on the heart of Pharaoh. 
You see, when man is so given to his sin and to his wickedness and into his pride, that he does not humble himself under the mighty hand of God, God judges him by giving him more of what he already is. We ask ourselves, how could it get any worse for Pharaoh? How could his heart get any harder when God applies his hand of judgment? Now, as I've mentioned this before, Romans 1 mentions this very clearly. Turn there with me. We've already uh, been there a few times, but I think it's important here to see. When we think about human history and times in human history, we think about when man became so wicked that you think, how could this be? And somebody might say, well, if there was a God, He would, he would stop it. And they don't understand what the Bible says. Mankind can reach a point when he becomes so wicked and so hard that God applies a hand, His hand of judgment. And He says, you want evil? I'll give you more evil. You want to be wicked? I'll, give you, I'll, I'll, I'll make you even more wicked. To the point here where man is, is uh, God applies His hand of judgment upon man. Notice in Romans chapter 1, the Bible says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. I want you to know here as we read that, the wrath of God is revealed. I know we say, we say that those who die in their sin without Christ will spend an eternity in hell, but in the context, the wrath of God is revealed. How is the wrath of God revealed against men? By God giving them over to a reprobate mind. That is the judgment of God. If you notice with me, uh, verse 18 again, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There is no excuse for their behavior, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the loss of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burn in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, 
full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, here it is, but have pleasure in them. Three times God says the things that they know of God, they deny the truth, they deny their intuitive knowledge of God, the things that they know to be true, and so they, be, they become vain in their imagination, and as a result their foolish heart is darkened, they profess themselves to be wise, but what happens? They become fools. They become irrational. They become unnatural. Why? Because God applies His hand of judgment and He hardens their heart. He says, you want sin? You want rebellion? I'll show you where that rebellion will drive you. It will destroy a society. I want you to see as we look at the world around us, we live in, I believe, that type of society where we are engaging, not we, but the society is engaging in all kinds of vile and wicked things we, all, we live here in an age where people are becoming unnatural. They're saying that men can be women and that men, and that men can be women and women can be men. Uh, they're, uh, they're mutilating children. There's all kinds of vile affection going on. Understand what that is. This is not God. Well, God is going to send His judgment. No, that is the judgment of God. That is reflective of the... The hard-heartedness where God has applied His heart of judgment upon a generation that has become unnatural. It is the judgment of God. You see, the judgment of God is not coming. It is already here. And we see it everywhere. So, say, Pastor, leave us with some good news. I will. Do you remember why God is doing this? Moses, I want you to do this so I can show my power to Pharaoh. I'm going to do this so that you can teach your children and your children's children what God has done. And I'm going to do this so that you can see that I'm the sufficient one. In the midst of all that, what does he say to the children of Israel? You tell what God has done for you. You spread the news where you can spread it better than anywhere else in your home and your children and your children's children. And you pass that on to the next generation. Do you want to do you, do you want to fight a corrupt world that is so given to sin that we are in the midst of the judgment of God? Then you do what God said. And you may say, well, certainly there's got to be something greater we can do. God will do His part. But we must do ours. The danger is we might try to do God's part. How can we be involved? And, you know, we, 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 we might be living, I think, people that are motivated to see things change in society. 
They might want to form a political movement. They might try to, to change the world. And what God says is concentrate on your family and your home. Teach your children. By the way, as I mentioned, he's going to tell them that again and again and again and again. In the book of Exodus, and then right before they go into the promised land, he's going to tell them the same thing. You better tell your children, teach your children what God has done. You see, the greatest discipleship program that should take place should take place in your home. Where you are fighting a corrupt world with all your might by investing in your children. That is the answer.